You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Ralph Macchio, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome to the Epic Marvel Movie Podcast. I am Steve Ferguson. And I am Douglas Ferguson. Welcome back to the show, Doug. Thank you. It's It's been, I guess we usually do one, about one a month, right? Correct-ish. Yeah, so, you know, it's been a month. <laughs> it's been <laughs> a month. It's, it's been a hell of a month. So I have an, an interesting project going with, uh, with my son, mm-hmm. uh, where... This started, I guess, kind of a while back. We were uh, going through basically series and watching series. Uh, and we watched reboots, Beast Wars, and... Uh, All the good um, stuff, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Firefly. Oh, yeah. And uh, then we watched Quantum Leap. And then it was actually my wife who kind of came up with the idea. It's just like, you know, Andrew hasn't seen any Star Trek. Uh, why don't you watch all Star Trek with him? Yeah. And, hey, if you, if you start it, if you do it chronologically, then you'd start with Enterprise... And, you know, he'd recognize, you know, the actor. He'd recognize Scott Bakula. And that would be kind of like an inroad into Star Trek. Oh, yeah. And at first I was just like, ah, oh, that's going to take literal years. Like, actual years to catch up on, on Star Trek and watch it all. But then I became fascinated with the idea. And so that's what we've been doing. We're actually, we've watched all of Enterprise. We watched uh, The Cage. Then we watched the first two seasons of Discovery. And we're in the original series right now. And yeah, yeah. so the How idea we've been out of now for then over a year. Okay, yeah. So I, I guess it will take literal years. Um, and I guess it works as well because you said at some point you haven't actually seen all of Deep Space Nine. I, I had seen a handful of episodes of the original series and a handful of episodes of DS9, truthfully. And I feel like probably not all of Voyager. No, I've, but, I definitely but, have some holes in Voyager, but, uh, but a chunk of Voyager, if I, if I recall correctly from our. From our uh, days of youth. And truthfully, I hadn't seen all of Enterprise either. I'd seen a good amount of Enterprise, but I hadn't seen all of it. So you're taking an opportunity to catch up yourself. Mm-hmm. But so doing that kind of implanted the idea in my head as well as we started this podcast is I knew that Star Trek had been a Marvel property. I don't recall if it still is, truthfully. The comic adaptation, because I know they're still releasing comic adaptations uh, for... For Star Trek, uh, and actually, even the J.J. Abrams reboots, they are getting Star Trek comics of original series stories done. So they take original story ideas like the Galileo Seven, and then they reimagine them as if it's the J.J. Abrams crew who are now going through these, going through these these episodes. And oh. so they act a little bit different. Uh, and the situation is a little bit different. It's very, very clever stuff right now. That is kind of clever, yeah. I can get behind that. But I knew that Marvel used to do this stuff. So that the idea kind of came to mind. is just like, well, I'm genuinely curious about Star Trek The Motion Picture. Mm-hmm. Genuinely curious. Uh, it's kind of a divisive film, to be honest. Um, I know there's a lot of people who are just like, you know what? I don't care what anybody says. Especially go to the Facebook group, the original Star Trekkers. Or don't. 
Uh, I mean, because some, sometimes they're just like, Discovery sucks, Abrams film sucks, TOS or nothing. But other times you get some really interesting little factoids, but you do see a lot of interesting opinions, and one of them is that, oh, you know, I don't care what anybody says, it just feels like Trek, and I love it so much. And you get other people, fair enough, myself included, who are like, let's be honest, it's kind of a boring movie. Uh, so, uh, where Nomad has gone before, Star Trek The Motionless Picture, Star Trek The Slow Motion Picture, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a few of those uh, few of those kicking around. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also have been sort of re-watching some Star Trek. Personally, I've been watching DS9 and Voyager, because I, I realize I haven't watched most of those. And um, I've been watching TNG with uh, my fiance Allie. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we started we started for our web series Allie hasn't where I'm catching her up on the pop culture that I grew up with, and she genuinely had a great time with Star Trek. Um, and so yeah, we went, we've been watching some TNG. It's a slow process because there's a lot of episodes, and we uh, can only fit in maybe like one every two weeks or so. Um, You're gonna be out a long time. Well, it, it'll, it'll probably pick up <laughs> once we're married, and then we can we'll actually have like more nights together. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, uh, but as it is, because we only see each other a couple times a week, that's what we, that's how it's gonna be. But yeah, so I I, I pitched us rewatching this um, for the podcast. I'm like, hey, you know what? Like, let's let's get her a little more acquainted with the Kirk and Spock days because there's some stuff that's gonna be happening in TNG down the road that might mm-hmm. require some context from the uh, the original crew. I, I, there are some a little bit of movie tie-ins. Sure. Um, and and so I'm like, okay, hey, do you want to watch this film with us? Um, it is 80 years before TNG ish. Ish. Um, and it has the original crew, Kirk and Spock, and she was totally on board. Mm-hmm. So yeah, then we we watched it. Yes, a few days ago. So. Do you remember, I I don't remember if it was birthday or Christmas, do you remember ages ago, you got me a big old book called Star Trek Phase 2? It was, yes, uh, yes, yeah. yeah. It's, it was a compendium by Michael and Jan Okuda. Um, Michael and Denise Okuda? Jeez, the Okudas. Mm-hmm. Um, about everything Star Trek Phase 2. And just as a quick catch-up for anybody at home, Star Trek, the original series, ran from 66 to 69. And then was canceled due to due to ratings. Um, this is a hotly disputed point because apparently, although the ratings weren't great, they were excellent for males age eighteen to late twenties. You know that hot demographic that advertisers love. Mm-hmm. It was very popular with that demographic, just not ratings overall. Anyways, marketing people can analyze that to death. And there was always talk about bringing Star Trek back. A lot of people tend to gloss over the animated series, which Andrew and I will be going over. Canonicity, hotly debated, but people tend to gloss over the animated series. But So there was like two years, two seasons of the animated series, and then they were talking about bringing Star Trek back Phase 2 with a redesigned Enterprise, keeping the same uniforms from the 60s uh, to save on, on budget stuff. And then that fell through. And then there was talk, oh, we should make a movie. Oh, no, that's way too expensive. Okay, let's go back to making a series. And then 77 comes around. Mm-hmm. Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars. Yeah, I I hear that uh, that Star Wars got to be quite popular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, that's that space sword movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I mean, naturally, the other studios were like, "We got to get on this. We got we got to ride this momentum." Oh, there were there were uh, so many Star Wars. No, not that was the word to look for. There were so many Star Wars ripoffs, uh, like. Floating around. I mean, one of your favorites. One Steve, of my favorites is yeah. Star Crash. Star Crash. A Roger Corman film. 
Um, and you know, to be fair, it really is magical. <laughs> it really is. An, it's uh, honestly, it's an enjoyable watch. Don't I mean? I, I almost want to say don't expect a masterpiece, but in its own right, it is a masterpiece. You know, so much yeah. effort was put into it legitimately. You're like, wow, it's like it's like a spam knockoff that is so tasty. <laughs> you know, it's just like you're you're not even spam. You're a knockoff of spam, but you're so delicious. Yeah, but it like clearly, clearly, just no gave no did not care one bit about even being considered a ripoff. They're like, <laughs> of course we're a ripoff. Of course, <laughs> of course we are. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah. So what a lot of people were saying about Battlestar Galactica. People were just like, actually, and this is interesting. I learned this in my uh, one of my classes, uh, English classes in college. A lot of people were harping on Battlestar Galactica for being a Star Wars ripped off. And one of the big things was they'd point at the Cylons and they'd say, oh, "The Cylons are they're just big stormtrooper knockoffs." Mm-hmm. But interestingly, the red eye that goes back and forth is actually in- influenced by the Hobbit by Smog. Because there's a passage that's that where uh, where Bilbo thinks that the dragon's asleep, but when he gets closer, he sees that the red eye is open and darting back and forth and back and forth, scanning all the time. Scanning. I don't think he uses the word scanning, obviously, but um, but looking and and that was a huge that was a huge inspiration for the Cylons. Well, I mean, you know, that, that's the thing is that uh, nothing's truly original. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's let's call a spade a spade. A lot of the visual elements were influenced by by Star Wars, but I mean, like, how can you not be? How how can you not be? I mean, not not that this is a Star Wars podcast, no. but Star Wars, of course, was extremely derivative of like samurai films and westerns. Mm-hmm. So you know, everything Buck Rogers, and... everything's borrowed. Yeah. So, but this this sets the stage because honestly, through and through, they could not get Star Trek Phase Two off the ground, like it because it was shaping up to be expensive. And what's the number one priority for a studio? To make money. Yeah. And it's like, well, hold on a second. Should we really... Like, Gene Roddenberry was having some clout and stuff, but he wasn't He wasn't like He wasn't like King Midas. And, and so, you know, there was a lot of resistance to getting Star Trek, again, off the ground until Star Wars. Until Star Wars made all the money in the universe. Mm-hmm. And, and continues to make all the money in the universe. So then they're just like, okay, let's get a movie going. Like, now. And to be fair... The movie is decidedly not Star Wars. Yes, interestingly. Yeah. You know, curiously, it actually seems to almost want to be 2001. Yes, yes. I would say that is the most comparable film is uh, Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe like uh, um, Dark Star. Maybe some Dark Star thrown in. Um, but without like... without. Well, I mean, it's kind of dark, but it's also... I think this is part of the problem is that it is it is kind of dark in tone and ominous in tone, but it's not quite as like we're all gonna die really sort of thing. You know, we're like Alien is an excellent example of this as well. Came out the same year, nineteen seventy nine, where it's just like you watch Alien, and you're like, are any of these guys gonna live? And you know, you whereas that you're watching Star Trek, you're like, how are they gonna figure this out? Because you know they are. Mm-hmm. Alien, you're like, I don't think anyone's gonna live except for that cat. So watch watching the I've seen the film actually truthfully. Um, I don't like the film a lot, but I can watch it. And, and to be honest, um, the movie is utterly fascinating if you have the info info bubbles 
activated on your DVD. Like the special, the director's cut oh, special yeah, edition sure. I have, you can turn on info info text. You can turn that on, and then it's a great watch because like anytime anything isn't really happening, which is a lot, there's stuff coming up like trivia or production stuff, and then it's great. It's great. Well, yeah, totally. And it, it wouldn't like detract from the story, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> the story the story is very straightforward. Yeah. Um. I mean, yeah. I, I can watch it a lot more easily than Star Trek Five, and I can be forgiving at times of Star Trek Five as well, but. Um, I have troubles. I have troubles being forgetting about Star Trek Five, even though that I know that um, I know how much just fell through for the movie. That like conceptually it was so big, but like, but I just feel like it's hot garbage. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I'm not going to disagree. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to disagree. So I mean, like, I have a soft spot in my heart for Star Trek: The Motion Picture, but I am oh acutely aware of its flaws. Well, you know, and that's the thing, and I, that's kind of my relationship with Star Trek The Motion Picture as well, in that, like, I find it very fascinating. I think the story is, for how for how um, straightforward it is, the, actually, I guess, no, the, what I would say is the plot is very straightforward. The mm. story is really interesting. Mm. There's the backstory about basically what's going on with Kirk. On the, on actually, the, why don't you walk us through it, man? Well, Stephen, I will. I guess the the main okay so the main plot mm-hmm. is that there is a huge entity that apparently is is like a humongous cloud with uh, something inside of it and it is heading straight towards Earth and it is basically uh, disintegrating anything in its path mm. um, and it is up to the Enterprise and oh, the, the only ship in range it is up to the only <laughs> ship in range that is near Earth the headquarters. <laughs> Of the Federation <laughs> that can go and help them out, uh, and and I go and stop uh, this entity, which turns out to be named Viger, and uh, and yeah, and save save humanity, mm. stop humanity from being turned into nothingness. But the 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 story of the characters is much more interesting, it, it particularly uh, Kirk um, having this sort of conflict with Captain Decker, who was originally supposed to pilot. Not pilot, but uh, to command the Enterprise on the mission. But Kirk was desperate to get back out of the uh, his his admiral promotion back into the captain's chair because he missed being a captain so much. And uh, it basically is it's sort of sort of this ego power play between the two of them. Um, and then there's a story with Spock about how he's pursuing pure logic to perfect himself. And uh, before he reaches there, he realizes that. He senses the presence of the of the V'ger and goes to intercept the Enterprise to meet with it um, because it it had actually achieved pure logic and he sensed that and he sensed uh, I don't know if it's a kinship or he was just really curious about it. Um, in that I think it kind of wavers between both. Yeah, truthfully. Um, and so he he basically tries to connect with V'ger to uh, understand its perspective of this existence of pure logic. Yeah, and I think that basically summarizes the, the movie, other than, you know, it's, it's basically them going from Earth to V'ger, and then sometimes other things happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, My complex feelings about it are that the movie, like, I, it really is pure Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It really is uh, that really philosophical element that Gene Roddenberry really liked about Star Trek. He always felt that 
um, that science fiction was the last medium for philosophers to to kind of get their get their points of view out there that people in, in such a way that people would be able to consume it and not just think of it as sort of like a you know just you know poet like like oh these are just poets or you know I don't know like it, it was just something that um, he felt that this was the best way to get that um, that medium out there but uh, this movie is very straightforward, devastatingly slow, and a real chore to get through. Mm. Um, and I've watched it all the way through twice. Um, so once was about a decade ago, mm-hmm. and then just the other day. And I feel like that's about as often as someone should watch the movie. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe down, maybe another decade down the road, I'll be like, you know... I wouldn't mind checking out Star Trek the Motion Picture again, but honestly, like I have no desire to watch it anytime. Do, do the infotext thing. I, I might want to do, do that. Yeah, yeah, that might be interesting. Thing. Yeah. yeah, if we can find a functional DVD player uh-huh. that far down the road. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there is a lot of interesting things that that happen, and there's a lot of potentially interesting things. Um, part of part of what you just spoke about is um, is unfortunately only half explored and that is Kirk Kirk not being able to accept his promotion and wanting to be back in the captain's chair. This was addressed better in Star Trek 2 and that is Kirk is aging. Kirk was a young hotshot. He was the youngest captain in in uh, Starfleet history uh, and he was one of the only uh, captains who managed to bring back his ship after a five year mission in one piece with most of the crew intact. Uh, most of the uh, most of the the other ships did not. Defiance was uh, was sucked away in the Tholian web. Uh, the uh, oh, actually, to be honest, I just watched with Andrew the Doomsday Machine with the USS Constellation, which was dis- was not destroyed at first, but like ravaged by this planet eater. And then Commodore Decker, who is Captain Decker's father, uh, Commodore Decker tried to save his crew because the ship's systems were failing by beaming them down onto the nearest planet. Which then the planet eater then ate. He ate the crew. Yeah, he ate the crew, and then Decker Whoa. went, uh, became mad with grief. Um, a little hammy in the episode, but I mean, it's kind of hard not to feel for the guy. He was he was like, I'll I'll be the one to remain behind to make sure all the crew get to safety, and then we'll just wait for we'll just wait for a rescue basically because the ship is annihilated, and then the, the constellation is destroyed at the end. Um, but I mean, Kirk managed to make it back. Um, but even though we, we, we definitely get the sense that he wanted command back and he wasn't happy being an admiral, we never tackled the age aspect. And that is is that he's he's a man who, who's very in a very complicated way, he's he doesn't want to tackle his age and he finds his age embarrassing and threatening. Um and that's thank God they, they really they really approached that head on in Star Trek two. Um which was which was a good move, honestly. So I, I, and it's like, well, Steve, you can't really fit all this stuff in a movie. You could fit, you could have fit it in this movie. You could have cut out <laughs> some of the, some, some of the, the effect shots, and you could have addressed this a little more. We, um, it had been a while since I watched it, and uh, I forgot that there is genuinely good character interactions between Spock, McCoy, and Kirk, and levity and stuff like that. But it's so easy to forget. And uh, I know uh, some of you guys who know the backstory already uh, are already you know shouting at your speakers about ah but steve you know about the special effects house yes um 
I read about some of it in the Star Trek Phase 2 book and then a, a lot of it in Leonard Nimoy's second autobiography, I Am Spock, where the first set of effects that they got back uh, were just terrible and were unusable. So they had to, last minute, go to another effects house, which produced uh, a lot of uh, fantastic effects. And then here's where the story kind of gets a little, a little muddied because we're not sure if it was completely then slapped together and edited by the effects house who who just kind of inserted it and then shipped it off and it was good to go uh nimoy describes actually in his book that some of the prints were still uh quote unquote wet the term is wet as in like they were fresh very freshly produced when they were shipped out to the theaters um um or if if they got it back and then they made like a couple a couple edits but didn't have time to edit further it's really really tough to say uh, especially because, again, I have the director's cut, and he's trimmed footage. There are, like, uh, there's 11 deleted scenes straight off uh, the DVD um, that you can choose to watch if you really want to. And a lot of the special effects shots were trimmed. Uh, and even the, uh, oh, yeah, my favorite part, the overture. <laughs> overture is trimmed as well. Um, overtures. <laughs> oh, my God. I love I love that it has an overture. But I also, again, it's another, it's, okay, it's mixed feelings. Again, it's like, wow, I can't believe they have an overture. And then I'm, and part of me is like, but don't make me watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I mean, for us this time around, because I think we used it to fill out Ali in with some backstory. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, we just chatted over it. And then, then the movie started. It was even before the the studio logo. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was um, before the snipe. Yeah. But uh, yeah, what a, it's just, there's something about this film that really harkens back to older movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially, you know, again, that's very strange considering it was like following up star wars which was like so which forwarded movies so much um like everyone had to follow star wars as lead mm-hmm. and then this one even though it's supposed it was like greenlit because of star wars it was calling back to a time well before that definitely well as we said like with space odyssey mm-hmm. 2001 especially we had also talked about that uh the black hole that, that was that 79 do you remember I believe it was. I believe it was the same year. Yeah, it also had an overture. Yeah, which also kind of weird. Uh, yes, no, yeah. truthfully, truthfully, very, very weird. Almost weirder for the black hole because it was, um, you know, it was like Disney and it was more family oriented. Yeah, you know. Um, but I guess uh, that's that, a, yeah. That, that's that's a that's a whole other kettle of fish. But needless to say, yeah. that's a weird movie. Yeah, there's another movie where I have complicated feelings about it. Very much so. Uh, I I agree wholeheartedly. And you can actually check out our our discussion on that on uh, at moving underscore pictures on YouTube, where Steve and I have a podcast about the black hole. Mm-hmm. I believe it. Yeah, it's up there. It's in there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Star Trek the Motion Picture. Um, kind of mixed critically, but fine. But like commercially, did fantastic. Uh, because it showed the audience still wanted Star Trek. Yes, the, the audience the audience still wanted Star Trek. And can I just say, for the record, and this mm. must have helped at least somewhat, that the the uh, the poster for this movie is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's it's kind of dated, but it's very it's very engaging. You know, you look at it and you're like, interesting. Like, yeah, what, what is just, this all about? It's just I don't know something. It just looks like a piece of art. Mm-hmm. It looks like it like go, goes back to uh, again, sort of a, another. I mean, actually, Star Wars was part of this too, but mm-hmm. this is more of a recent trend where they've gone out of fashion, where uh, like movie posters were really artistic mm-hmm. and were like they were painted and like 
Like they were beautiful. They were mm-hmm. absolutely beautiful. And this was this is one of the, like one of my favorites actually. Star Trek Beyond had a limited series of posters. I only ever saw uh, a couple of them that were heavily inspired by Star Trek Motion Picture. Yes, and did I remember, the, the, yeah. the color the color. Actually, it's too bad. I would have liked to have seen that a bit more. But I understand why they did why they didn't. Um, but I, I thought it looked fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, interestingly, the film was directed by Robert Wise of West Side Story and. Um, Sound of Music and The Day the Earth Stood Still, which I guess is the closest thing to to Star Trek, maybe that he did really. Well, it showed that he had uh, some science fiction in his background. Yeah, but it was, yeah. it, you know, truthfully, it's it's very much like uh, 60s Hour Limits, which, interestingly enough, uh, Leonard Nimoy, I think, was on 60s Hour Limits, and William Shatner was on 60s Twilight Zone. Um, well, actually, uh, Leonard Nimoy was also was he on Twilight Zone in in the '90s Outer Limits. Oh yes, that's true. Yeah, so he had to do another version of what was it, iRobot? Was that what it was called? Yeah, but it wasn't the Asimov iRobot. Yeah, it was, it was based just... on an iRobot of a different. But yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> needlessly complicated. Tangent, tangent. Yeah, it is interesting. The directorial choices for this movie, I think, are influenced by Gene Roddenberry. And because I feel like Wise, who had never watched Star Trek, I felt like at times that it was kind of like Gene Roddenberry who was directing. You know what I mean? Kind of like how people some people say Poltergeist was <laughs> technically Toby Hooper. Yeah, but um, but but actually Steven Spielberg. That's that's still fiercely debated. Like there's yeah. a, there's a, some actors who are like, no, I was directed by Hooper, and there's others who are, who are like uh, there's other like PAs and stuff are like, well, Spielberg was there all the time, and you know, yeah, it's yeah. fiercely debated. Well. <laughs> you know, I mean, but I guess this is still also up for debate. Uh, yeah, uh, sure, maybe, maybe not. I don't sure, know. I, I can tell you as well. Gene Roddenberry wrote the novelization, and it was the only one that he wrote. It includes. Um, okay, so here's a little piece of a piece of trivia because it includes a lot of stuff that didn't happen on screen that, but were obviously in earlier drafts. Originally, Leonard Nimoy, it didn't look like he was going to be in Star Trek Phase Two or even in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, depending on when. Well, so, if, you, if you ever watch um, the uh, documentary um, for the love of Spock, I've been meaning to. Yeah, uh, uh, it's it's directed by his son. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think being Spock and the the level of celebrity that it brought him to really took a toll on him. Mm-hmm. So um, I I can understand why he at this point in his career wanted to distance himself from the character. Yeah. So. Uh, one of the replacements was going to be this character Zahn, who uh, was fully Vulcan, and he was he was going to be played by this guy uh, David Gatreau. Uh and and David Gatro was with the pre production stuff for the series, and he had done screen tests, and they were all like, "This is fantastic! This you know this guy's going to be good, you know." Uh, and now he wasn't cast as Zahn in the film, but he was cast as Commander Branch, the guy who was in command of the uh, the outpost, the post that gets eaten by V'ger. So he was oh. cast in that role. So and it's <laughs> this is a funny thing to me because so he was going to be a major major player in the series, and he was cast and ready to go. Then he's kind of like sort of a secondary, not even a secondary character, but more than a cameo. You know, he's a minor character. There you go in the movie. And then I don't know if you remember in the comic when. It's Commander Branch. The guy looks completely different, <laughs> so his likeness wasn't even used in the in the uh, in the comic adaptation. Wah, wah. It's just like, ouch, poor David Getro. <laughs> yeah, actually, the book is a the book's a fascinating read. Uh, to be honest, there's uh, the transporter scene that goes awry, the most exciting thing to happen in the movie, 
there's two people who are beaming up. One of them is Zon, the science officer, and the other one is a, a woman that Kirk was having a fling with, who was coming to to uh, to wish him off. Uh, yikes! This, of course, is not covered in the comic, but you know what? Why don't we get into the comic? Why not? Yeah. Uh, so she came out uh, in April 1980 in three issues and three stunning issues, and I will say stunning because. I don't know about you, but the, these covers are awesome. Oh yeah, I like in them. particular, cover number two is super awesome. It's it's great stuff. Very I mean, dramatic. it's just well, that's yeah. just it, right? It, I mean, it's almost more entertaining than the movie. Whoa, <laughs> hello. <Hey-o. laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be like that through here. Okay, so <laughs> so let's talk about issue number one. We. Oui. So what's uh what hell happens during issue number one? Well, first I gotta say that uh, we get a nice splash mm-hmm. uh, on the very front. Uh, you know, sort of covering the, the basic imagery of it, you know, the Enterprise going whoosh, mm-hmm. and, um, oh, shoot, what's her name? Ilya. Ilya. <laughs> She's standing there being very alien and bald, and and then dramatic Kirk, dramatic Spock, Klingon vessel, and a nice little spoiler to, to ruin the twist ending <laughs> uh, of, of uh, what V'ger actually is, right on the opening page. <laughs> Just right there. There you go. <laughs> uh, anyone with any NASA knowledge can sort of identify what it is. Um, and uh, so, yeah, in case you're wondering, <laughs> there you go. Here's the ending for you. Um, there you go. Opening splash, all the credits, mm-hmm. beginning, middle, end. There you go. Um, then we got the, uh, the Klingons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know this. It, you know what I will say is it definitely it covers all the bases of uh, of uh, like this is kind of the, the the pace of the comic is pretty pretty good. Uh, you know we, that that Klingon battle is pretty slow in the movie, mm-hmm. and you know they just get it all done in one page. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and what more do you need to know? Notice the religious overtones are a lot uh, more pronounced in here. In the beginning, there was darkness, then God's the light. Like, this kind of harkens back to a really early draft of the of the motion picture, where it was going to be the pilot, and it was entitled "The God Thing," and there was going to be way more allegory of of the interplay between creator and creation. That, yeah, I, get, well, I mean, that is definitely a heavy theme in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the sort of this seeking God aspect of it. Yeah. And I'm just going to have a moment of silence for the Klingons. <laughs> <laughs> this was, uh, notice that the Klingons, um, like, they've still got their forehead ridges, right? But um, they're very interestingly, like, Look, they're like a, a a snail, no, like a slug, kind of just crawling on their foreheads. It's almost like an intermediate step between the Klingons of the original series and the the Klingons in the in the film. So uh, I I think there was still kind of some debate as to how alien they wanted the Klingons to look. To be true. Well, yeah, you know, this is the first time that they didn't look like people, essentially, right? Like or, or, or like humans. Yeah. Um. So it's understandable that the early makeup job. It wasn't quite on par with what the Klingons would turn out to look like. Of course, yeah. Um, but it's close enough. Like anyone, like, like it's not like going back. I was like, what are these aliens? What, the, what is <laughs> going on? I don't know. And the uniforms are are dead on for what what the Klingons would be wearing all the way through the series. Um, through um, TNG and Deep Space Nine and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, basically, we get like a hell of a lot of character establishment and situational establishment in the in the first in the first uh, 
first issue here we have mm-hmm. uh you know what's spock up to what's kirk up to and you know they they usually the, uh the page economy really well essentially like mm-hmm. like again one page for the klingon battle one page for what's going on with spock one page for uh kirk meeting up with uh mr other vulcan face <laughs> other vulcan face. <laughs> who looks so bored he, he oh. looks so bored. He's like, oh, well, he's like, he's, he's like, I, you know what? I, my, my life here at Starfleet, very boring. I think this is going to be my last mission, and then I'm going to go home and spend more time with my family. <laughs> Do you know who he doesn't look like? David Gatro. <laughs> poor, poor David Gatro. <laughs> poor David Gatro. Cut out of the comic. <laughs> uh. Uh, yeah, so I... I like that it makes it explicitly clear because, I mean, like, if you went up to go to the bathroom mm-hmm. uh, in the movie at this point, I think you'd miss you'd miss the part where Kirk was kind of, like, coming in under the radar without really telling anybody that, that he was taking commands. Mm-hmm. Um, and some yeah, of the dialogue... You know, honestly, that, that early in the movie, why are you already making a bathroom break? You should probably see a doctor. Was it even that early? I don't. I think it was like twenty minutes. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, who knows? Yeah, good point. Um, I guess it just feels that way when you're looking at the comic because it's like page three. Yeah, um, yeah, right. So, but yeah, maybe in the movie it's like twenty minutes in. So everybody's thrilled to see him. Even Decker at first. So Decker's like, like, oh man, top brass send off. And actually, I will note that a lot of the dialogue in this in this comic is extremely reminiscent i'm not verbatim but extremely reminiscent of of the film it was very spot on and yeah. also uh the artist who was the artist again oh yes um, i forgot to mention so Mar- marv wolfman did the scripts and the edits uh dave cockram did pencils and klaus jansen did the inks yeah they actually do a really good job of capturing the likeness of the the main cast yes yeah but as you said obviously they not they, commander branch not commander branch <laughs> Um, but Why the, would they change him? I don't know. Because really, look, he's like a redhead now. You know what I mean? He looks completely I, different. Just, I just probably didn't bother. Or maybe do you need likeness rights? I guess to I you know like what do you need to buy? I don't know. Um, I don't know how it works. But but I, I mean obviously they 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 knew they needed the likeness rights of the main cast because people are gonna be like that's not Kirk. But with, with Mr. Side, Sidebar McGee here. <laughs> Sidebar uh, McGee. Like, who's going to really Mary be, Le- Who's going to be like, that doesn't look like David Gatto or whatever. <laughs> G- Gatto, yeah. Gatto, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, so anyways, there's the transporter malfunction. Mm-hmm. Everyone uh, gathers on the rec deck and watches yeah, the, yeah. the clean-on battle and then watches, like... The the uh, the station epsilon gets get roasted. You know, they even uh, kept the uh, the really awkward line about uh, Ilya. I, I can never remember Ilya's heard her her line about her oath of celibacy that comes out of nowhere. Oh, um, right. Yeah, she's like my oath of celibacy is on record, and everyone's like, uh, thank you. <laughs> I've heard so many. Okay, so both nostalgia critic and sf debris <laughs> made jokes because how can you not but things i think nostalgia critic said uh well i guess it makes sense because kirk's oath of promiscuity is on records as well <laughs> and sf debris said well you know it's it seems kind of like a, it seems kind of like an out of place non sequitur but uh but knowing kirk's reputation <laughs> maybe, maybe she felt like she just had to get it out there <laughs> Just, just nip that out of the just, bud. Just right now. Yeah. Actually, you know what? I'm going to be honest. Again, Gene Roddenberry. I know Gene Roddenberry is revered a lot, but lately, um, and this isn't a negative thing. Even his son said that he likes to hear about this stuff because he likes to hear about how human it makes his dad. Um, but Gene Roddenberry was kind of a sick guy sometimes. Um, and so, and he had some great ideas, but he also had some really stupid ideas as well. Uh, like he really wanted the Frangie to be like... Um, 
like very male genitalia oriented and stuff like that. Uh, really? Oh yeah, and have like big cod pieces accentuating their their junk and uh, and <laughs> and uh, oh, Turnabout Intruder. The last the last episode of Star Trek: The Original Series involves uh, Janet Lester. I think her name is. She goes crazy because she's not allowed to command a starship and Kirk's like women aren't allowed to sorry well, and then they switch bodies and I know there's there are theories out there like well maybe he just tells her that because she's crazy or you know whatever but I mean like uh, you, you see you know. for, for as progressive as, as Gene Roddenberry was when mm-hmm. it came to uh, racial politics and and you know and and vouching and, and, and propelling like fair representation in media um, he was extremely forward-thinking, and you got to give him major kudos for some of the the, the ground that he broke in 60s mm-hmm. um, television. Yep. But uh, apparently, not so much with the with, with the with the with, with uh, gender politics and mm-hmm. women's rights and and uh, he was I saw again I saw that documentary, but made by, actually also made by his son about him uh, his son trying to find. Uh, you know, just unearth uh, information about his dad and get to know the the real Gene Roddenberry, and he was just he was just extremely promiscuous and 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 extremely un- unfortunately very unfaithful to Major Barrett. Mm. That wasn't the uh, the fight that he was having was it wasn't for it wasn't progressive uh, for uh, gender politics. It was uh, so. Um, Interestingly, yeah. in the novelization, he goes way more into the Delton sexuality. I mean, the movie's pretty light on it. The comic mentions, uh, I believe, mentions that uh, humans are sexually immature. The comic goes into that way more. Uh, So not the comic, the book. The novelization goes into that way more. And when, Hmm. you know the scene in the movie where they're putting the headband on her or whatever, and they're Mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, you still really like this one or whatever. Yeah, well, afterwards, she and Decker have sex. The the robot the ro- robot probe Ilya and Decker have sex. Oh, and hmm. and he describes it as a particularly nasty sort of thing, and not not like nasty, but just like Decker afterwards feels awful. You know, he's just he's just like oh oh that was terrible and stuff like that. And I remember reading it being like, what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> why, why is this in here? Well, there's a lot of I mean, there's things that made it into the film where you're like, well, what does this have to do with anything? So, um. Yeah, you know, it mentions in a comic about uh, humans being too sexually immature. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember that in the movie. Was that cut out, or was that? It it may have been. I didn't go through the deleted scenes. Yeah, because um, I can't. I I remember I was thinking it. I, I don't remember seeing it happen on screen. It is worth knowing as well. There was a television edit as well. So there were there's scenes on the DVD that were they're deleted scenes as well, but they were put in for the television edit. Okay. Uh, interestingly enough, so I mean, I mean, if if you can't get enough of this movie, get get that director's cut DVD. If well, DVD, pff, right? <laughs> I um, but I mean, cool. like, I'll lend it to you. But like, uh, there's there's so much more Star Trek: The Motion Picture. <laughs> I actually <laughs> the have the, the whole Blu-ray collection of the original the original crew, uh, their movies. So oh, yeah. I'd be curious what's on the Blu-ray because it's probably even more than the DVD. I would assume so. Yeah. yeah. So they burn, uh, burn. Yeah, they beam up McCoy. Then they start taking off, and they're, and they're just like, let's get into some I warp do, speed. I do really like that splash uh, mm-hmm. on page uh, 2021. Yes. Um, with the the Enterprise zooming off. It looks great. It's a really good shot. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like things like this cover, they do just as much yeah. as as the what the film does in a way f- 
faster pace. Well, I mean, actually, that well, that's one thing that that I guess is up to you, right? Is mm. that if you're, you can take as long as you want to appreciate the artwork. As Alan Moore, I think, famously said, mm. is that with that he feels like comics shouldn't be translated into film because film forces your pace. Where comics, you can take more, you can take as much time as you want to take to soak in the artwork. Or was um, that the guy who did the? The art with him for V for Vendetta. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. No, that's. I, I definitely, I definitely remember reading that. Yeah, no, absolutely. They jump into warp speed and then get sucked into a wormhole. And uh, actually, when we were watching, you're like, "Why is there one so close to the solar system?" And they, they actually right. kind of. But it is. A, it's he, given. It's given like a quick line of dialogue by Scotty, just like, "Well, you know, it was our engine imbalance that caused the wormhole." Um, I don't think it's like a. Wormhole, really? Yeah, that. Well, that I, I, I never really, because yeah, if it's not a wormhole, I don't exactly understand what it is. It's like just some sort of like slipstream or some or something. It's like it's like warp. It's like, but it's like warp out of control sort of thing. So it's basically the Enterprise was having turbulence. I, I guess so. <laughs> I guess uh, but so. it seemed to be a little more than that. They call it a wormhole, but then again, they say the thing that sucked up Voyager Six and deposited into the galaxy. They say black hole, um, which is not that would have been a wormhole. Um, mm. Yeah, and yeah. I mean it's immaterial, so. and and they get knocked out of it because of the because of the uh, the asteroid they destroy it with a photon torpedo. They don't really say why that knocks them out of this 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 imbalanced wormhole warp thing. I I assume the only thing that makes sense to me is that it was something to do with the antimatter explosion right in front, just kind of like counteracted it. I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I guess great um, effects though. Actually, truthfully, I really like it when they're in the wormhole. I uh, I mean it's oh it looks good. Yeah, it looks cool. Um, but it's a complete waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, they've literally created a problem just to get Spock in. That's basically yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but I guess I guess what you can say is that it it forges the story of the the Kirk and Deckard head bashing, right? Because mm. Deckard's the one who has to save the day. Yeah. But uh, you know, yeah, and I guess that that is what I will say. It it does it does do. Um, you know, I, I don't know about you, Steve, but mm-hmm. I'm kind of on Decker's side. Uh, I feel like yeah. Kirk really just shoehorned himself in and took this guy's job, uh, like right from under his nose. Um, yeah, the, the, sorry, this issue ends with Spock arriving and everyone oh, yeah, being sorry. shocked to see him. I'm, no, I'm it's skipping, okay. I'm skipping ahead. It's, it's okay, because I'm, I do kind of want to mention this in that the way the adaptation treats Decker as opposed to the film... Decker, uh, I mean, like he's in the right a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Not all the time. He's not. Al- he's not always willing to take the risks that Kirk is. Um, like when Kirk basically has the standoff with Viger mm-hmm. near the end, treat Viger like a child. I don't think Decker would have been willing to do that, and it was the right move to make. But I don't know for sure because sometimes when Decker is being contrary to Kirk, he's do- he says he's doing so because it's his role as executive uh, officer. So it could just be that he's just all—he's just doing his job and offering alternate opinions. And how would he actually act in the hot seat? That's hard—it's hard to say. Would Ilya have been have been the one to have been snatched if Decker was in command and Kirk wasn't that other body on the bridge? Maybe it would have snatched someone else, right? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Um, but in the adaptation, in particular, Decker seems way angrier. Like the comic doesn't paint mm-hmm. him, paint him as well. Uh, prime example: when Spock comes on board. In the film, Spock offers his service to science officer, uh, and Kirk says, you know, if Mr. Decker doesn't object, and Decker's just like, no, absolutely, come on aboard, and he seems fine with it. In the comic, he seems pissed off, and that's, he gets one emotion throughout the rest of the comic after afterwards, and it's just 
pissed off. Um, also, when um, Alia is taken by V'ger, mm-hmm. um he blows a gasket in the comic. Yeah. Yeah, he, he just loses it. Um, Which, where... in fairness, he was commanding officer, and now he's second in command. Totally inappropriate response. I, I mean, you knew the stakes. I mean, you're you're on a mission, and so far you've lost... Well, actually, it was one crew member in the movie, but it, actually the probe killed a guy in the comic. Yeah. yeah another there's, there's another yeah. casual... There, and it's a huge chain, because in the, in the movie, it was only two people who were lost. It was Decker and Ilya. But in the comic, it was one other guy, too, who was just killed on duty. Yeah, because yeah. he shot at him. Yeah. But then, yeah, it never happened in the film. Uh, but again, in the, in the film... He is, uh, yeah, in the film, he is a lot more in control when Ilya is taken. Mm. Um, he, he, it just seems like, I, I mean, obviously, he's not like stoked about it. <laughs> he's like, yeah. yeah, finally. Um, but, um, but he didn't, he doesn't outright yell at Kirk as mm-hmm. he does in the, in, uh, in the comic. Um, just a couple other notes I had for this first issue. Uh, on page five, they noted that Vulcan is more than a galaxy afar from, uh, from where V'ger uh, was interacting with the Klingons, that's not right. I don't know where more they... More than a galaxy? More than a galaxy afar, they used that phrase, and I was just like, what? Well, that doesn't... Yeah, that wouldn't... Um, that doesn't make any sense. Because <laughs> uh, the, 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 they haven't explored the whole galaxy. They're in quadrants. Like, they haven't even finished exploring the Alpha Quadrant. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I guess... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is a very uh, noticeable difference with Spock's development very early on in the issue when he's trying to finish the colonar in the film. Uh, she's about to put the necklace of, of amazingness on him and he holds up his hand and stops her. <laughs> of amazingness. Yeah, absolutely. And he holds up his hand and he stops her. And then she's like, oh, give me your thoughts. Oh, because of the thing. Okay, you're not ready. And then she drops it. Not in the comic. In the adaptation here, um, she, uh, she just straight up won't give it to him. You know, at all. She just she just uh, denies him it, um, he, and that's that's kind of it's subtle, but it's it's kind of an important thing because in the film it's Spock who initiates her stopping it. It's the hesitation in Spock. In the movie, it's her saying, "No, I'm sensing something. No, nope, you ain't getting it." Um, and so it kind of changes the motivation in the film. Then that Spock, then he's the one who needs to initiate and and go stop. You know, satisfy that curiosity and satisfy that thing in himself in the comic it's the lady who's initiating that process he would have just accepted it you know Mm -hmm. what i mean so Mm -hmm. there's slight slightly i mean it's it's different enough that i think it's it's important to the character uh opposite end of the spectrum what do you do when you have a character with a strong accent and you want to print their dialogue (laughs) um where where is that line between between being true to the voice and being, for lack of a better word, comical. You know, you're uh, talking about Scotty. I'm talking about Scotty. <laughs> you know, for the most part, I didn't find it to be a problem in here. But there was one of his first lines where it was almost just like, ha- like you had to go like, "What?" <laughs> as you're reading it, mm-hmm. and I had to kind of like read it out loud to like follow what it was. I'm like, "Oh, okay, he kinda he kind of make the jump to warp speed, Captain." Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have to uh, look it up. But yeah, yeah, it's tough. Uh, the transporter crisis. Um, there was a piece of dialogue changed, which I think kind of changes the overall tone of the scene. 
in the film when it looks like, oh, we might be able to fix this uh, Rand, now Transporter Chief, she says a couple words. She says, they're forming, which has this really nasty connotation that, oh, because she's like, oh my God, they're forming. You know, because they are, but they're coming together in all the wrong ways and pieces and screaming and stuff. And that's like, oh, you know, it's a kind of a visceral sort of like, oh, they're, they're forming. Uh, actually, um, sorry, CinemaSins, uh, there are, you know, X number of things wrong with Star Trek's motion picture. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, they have the segment at the end where they overdub lines from other movies and stuff in. Uh, and I think you made this joke as well, where uh, from Galaxy Quest... Oh, oh my god they're forming uh enterprise what we got back didn't live long fortunately and it exploded <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 it came inside out and it exploded <laughs> but in the adaptation she says they're vanishing oh that's 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 kind of like that's like sad yeah, you know that's that. not that's not gross that's just like sad and, and it's like vanishing it's like vanishing. oh we're losing where did they go we're losing oh they're them. gone they're gone no no they're they're forming it's like this horrible like blobby like mangled mess or they're vanishing off into the ethers it's it just it has a different tone um i prefer the forming even though it's horrific uh well i mean it's supposed to be horrific it, exactly yeah. exactly exactly yeah. um also uh somehow and again, I'm going to I'm going to applaud Cockrum and, and Jensen for the most part. I think they do a great job, but somehow the uniforms look worse in the adaptation. Than uh-huh. the, oh the, yeah, the, like the pajamas, the pajama uniforms. Uh, it's true though, is that they? I mean, there's no like they they look terrible in the film mm-hmm. for the most part. There's a few there's a few that Kirk manages to pull off pretty well yeah, the t-shirt um, one's okay yeah yeah but i mean about the, the t-shirt one yeah the the v-neck it looks a little too cash but uh <laughs> but it's better than yeah the, than, than most of the pajamas mm-hmm. um you know what, another problem with the uniforms is and this is just in general yeah is that um i don't get a clear sense of who belongs to what position yeah definitely um where, it, it, where every other star trek is pretty clear well actually well not most of the movies, because they a lot of those uniforms look very well uniform. Yeah. Um, but in you know the original series and TNG, like there was the color patterns that made it very clear what department that they were in, um, mm-hmm. and that is not the case in the with these uniforms at all. I don't know who like they just they could all just swap uniforms. I wouldn't even notice. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, yeah. yeah, Kirk Kirk did swap. Uniforms quite often. Uh, he went through four different costume changes or something. Like that. Something, like, something Yeah, we were counting them. It was something I hadn't noticed before. But I mean, he yeah. goes through a few. Um, and and I don't it took know me. Why. Sometimes it would take me a while to go like, oh, he changed his uniform. Oh, and it's oh. also like when. Yeah, and when, oh, when, when did he have the opportunity to do this? And why? Yeah, but I don't know. Yeah. So. Yeah, let's go into uh, issue number two. Yes. Uh, again, the one with the cover that I like. Spock's finally aboard, and he's just like, I am pure logic. I understand your ship is busted. Can I fix it? And they're like, okay. And and just like in the movie, everyone's like, hey, Spock, good to see you. And he's like, I'm going to get to work now. <laughs> it's like, like all right. Uh, yeah. or, or as Kirk would say, Spock. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. They fix up the ship and then they go and then they meet V'ger. V'ger attacks them. Chekhov gets fried. This is a good change from the film here in that um, one thing I like, so bizarre in that like Chekhov gets burned badly burned and fried and Ilya goes over to him 
and then Kirk calls for a medic, and then Dr. Chapel and the nurse come up, and she's going to begin to treat him, and Elia's like, I can take away his pain. So it's like, well, why didn't you do it earlier? In the comics, she does. She goes right to him, and she's just like, I can stop the pain immediately. And it's like, okay, that makes way more sense. Yeah. yeah I can stop the pain. Do it now. Stop that damn pain. Ouch, it hurts. Yeah, so, I mean, they figure out V'ger's trying to communicate with them. And just like, yeah, I, I think oh, what it was, they, they, they sent a message, it was like, do, 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 do. <laughs> and then V'ger sent it, wah, wah, back, right? Yeah, they needed to phone home, basically. Yeah, that was, that was yeah. the issue. Actually, oh, wait, hold on a second. V'ger practically does want to phone home at the end of the movie, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah V'ger does want to phone home, never yeah, mind. Okay, yeah. So, so there goes that joke. Joke not, failure. Not, not actually a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean... Um, they get inside the cloud. The cloud is large. Then they see the ship itself. There's a difference between the original version and the director's cut of the film as to how large V'ger is. And in the director's cut, they settle on two AUs. And the AU is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. It's the uh, astronomical unit, uh, I believe, is the... the, uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, And so, I mean, like, that's that's the cloud. The ship is, is... way smaller but it's still incredibly massive and mm-hmm. they make a comment that it could have a crew of thousands um it could it could but instead you know they're well, just looking at it and look like look at that sphincter i gotta say uh well actually <laughs> yeah, there's there's that famous uh V'ger sphincter yeah um it looks less so here i'd say actually um i i do like um I like the artwork in here. It's mm. not as it, it, well. It has a very different effect than in the film. In this one, well, like, they really embrace a lot of uh, like psychedelic colors and stuff like that. Where mm. that really wasn't the case in the movie. The case, no, the it, movie was so was, it was so beige. Well, no, no, the, the Enterprise was beige. Yes. Inside Vija was, was was blue, blues, blue, very yeah. like very predominantly blue. And there's there's still a lot of blue in here, but they you know they, they like this one uh, on page eighteen. This one panel of it's like this middle splash. Um, and it's just a very vibrant, a lot of different colors, and it's it's kind of it, you know I don't know if it's if it makes a lot of sense like why V'ger would be very colorful like that, or if it's just the way light is reflecting off things. Whatever the case is, I think it looks really nice. Uh, I don't know if it need, if it needs an explanation. It just it just makes for good art. Uh, the Star Trek Phase Two book has a lot of concept art for stuff that went into um went into the film and truthfully i think this pulls a lot from the concept art that was floating around because it was very colorful super psychedelic on the recreation deck they there was this uh painting done of um you know one of those like bizarre you know games that they had on the rec deck except they're like holding like giant balls and it's so so totally dark in the in the rec room except they're holding these balls that are glowing and they're all kind of standing there and it just looks super super psychedelic in this concept art hmm. uh which obviously never made it onto onto screen uh speaking of concept art minor uh minor uh sidestep they they were thinking of completely redesigning the enterprise completely redesigning the enterprise and one of the designs they came up with was a kind of a more flatter enterprise where the it sells the saucer section than it sells but instead it had a very short support neck and a very long triangular secondary hull and that was repurposed oh. into becoming discovery so the the the, hmm. the design for for discovery was star trek phase 2 concept art i i from your book thank you that you gave me a million years ago i recognized it immediately well, because 20 years ago eh? yeah i guess so 
Thereabouts. Yeah, I re- I recognized immediately. I was like, look at this ship design for Discovery. Because truthfully, I'm, I'm going to be honest right now. When I was a teen or whatever, like the Starship designs in Star Trek, I loved that stuff. I ate oh, that stuff yeah. up. I ate that stuff up. <laughs> My friend Paul is all about uh, the Starships. Like, he's got so many of them memorized, like, what their classes are. Mm-hmm. And it actually kind of reminds me of what it was like when I was a kid, when I, when I really got into... The, uh, the tech of Star Trek um, and so much of what I used to know about like the the different classes of ship and stuff I've forgotten mm. over time but uh, yeah yeah again you, you <laughs> Paul Paul's Paul's porn is just watching starship battles in, in, <laughs> uh, in, like, in, in Star Trek he, he just loves it and so much so he's like a super stickler for like like, no, nothing makes him more mad about the fact that a bird of prey took out the Enterprise D. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's like, it doesn't make any sense. They could have just reached out. Like, all it take is... Uh... How many times in TNG did they did they uh, cycle through the uh, the uh, the shield harmonics? And you know, how many... They did that all the time in the show. Yeah, totally. Um, and you know what? The thing is, like, the thing is, is that what he's saying makes perfect sense. It's like, of course, of course a bird of prey couldn't take out the... But you know the the plot said the plot said so, so it had to happen. Anyway, I also think in part Troy turning the ship and most of the weapons away from the bird of prey didn't help. Well, facing the other direction. Other direction. Yeah. But anyway, it's beside the point. Different movie. Different movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, isn't it amazing though how different like all these movies were? Isn't it amazing? Yeah. 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 Um, different, you know, different people at the helm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's it. Re- it really is a series that evolved with time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, back to the comics. So the probe, the Vija probe, comes on board, fries the one security guy, which again did not happen in the movie. Abducts. Oh yeah, it goes over to to uh, the, the, my favorite part. It goes over to like start reading through the uh, the Enterprise's computer, and they're like, "Ah, oh, we got to stop this." So Spock smashes the keyboard, which then you know gets miraculously repaired. Like five minutes after the the probe leaves, but yeah, I didn't think so, about that actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, right. It's like smashing the keyboard spot, uh, whatever. It's like uh, okay, and then Ilya gets smashed up, and you're right. Decker is just just Look chewing at that nails. Face. He's Look at that face. so angry, and it, you know, for the most part, we're on board with Decker. But I mean, that actually kind of shows he's not ready. For for command, if he's if he's reacting like that, I mean it's yeah, it sucks, I mean, but it, 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 I don't know how how strongly is it implied that they had a previous relationship in in, in the comic. In the comic, uh, it's it's brief, like in the movie. Yeah, it's it's so. I mean, basically, uh, folks, Decker and Ilya are Riker and Troy. Um, there were scripts uh, for Star Trek Phase Two. Uh, there was like like tons. There was a season worth of scripts that were done. Um, some of them made no sense. Some of them were terrible, but some of them were interesting. One of them is the child. Uh, which was made into a season two episode of TNG, and it's just—it's basically the same as the TNG one. You just swap out a uh, Riker and Troy for Decker and Ilya, and um, you know you you, you kind of change the dynamics a little bit because it's Kirk and Command, right? But it's, it's basically the exact same story. And um, yeah, no, it's um, it's not really given. Like, okay, they had a fling years ago, but like now all of a sudden he's he's super like. It's like it's not, not like you guys were married. You know what I mean? Well, I, I, it's not like they just broke up either. Apparently, mm-hmm. it's implied it was quite a few years ago. And given the scope of the mission as well, I mean, this in the film, it's a more natural reaction, and he 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 snaps. He he makes a snap about it, and then he he goes and he he kind of 
you know, he's, he's got to kind of stand back and he's got to take a breath and stuff. Gotcha. I'm on board for that. But in this, though, no, you're right. He's got the anger. He's got the angry finger right in Kirk's face, and he's, uh, yeah, he's just he's just pissy pissy. And that's where that's where issue number two basically ends. Yeah. Okay. So there was a curious comment though that it wasn't in the movie. It was in this adaptation that was just baffling. And at one point, McCoy asserts that Vulcan has no art and that this was a serious deficiency. That, that, you know, why would you want to be like V'ger? You know, it's basically it's bad enough that you guys, you don't even have any art on your planets. I mean, this is tremendously wrong. Tremendously wrong. And it's not even wrong, like, with all the series and stuff we see afterwards for Star Trek. It's wrong even by the original series standards as well, Vulcan having no art. Like, for starters, even in the first season, which is before you even get to Vulcan, Amok Time is the first time you see Vulcan, and that's in season two. Like, Spock plays a, uh, he plays like a lute um, sort of thing. They have music. They have music, mm-hmm. for starters. And uh, Spock, in his quarters, seen him multiple times, he's got art in there. And it's, don't tell me it's human art, because it's not. So, I mean, yeah, that, very bizarre. Very bizarre comment. I don't know, I don't know why it was put in. I'm going to assume early draft of the script. I'm going to assume. Something that wasn't uh, cleared out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I mean, the, I made a big comment about Decker being downright insubordinate. Yeah, so I mean, like, the second second issue really helps, I think, move the plot along to the point where the stakes are pretty... They're raised. It, it has done... The first, the first issue has kind of said, here's the characters, here's where everything's going, and then the second issue really succeeds in raising the stakes. We've lost two crew members. One has come back as a robot zombie, basically, and the thing is massive, and it's a ship. And right now, they don't know it's a single computer that's that's basically running this entire ship. They think there could be a crew of thousands on there. So the odds seem ridiculously against them. Mm-hmm. And then it takes us through issue three. Well, again, uh, I do also like the cover art. Uh, you know, it's a good classic shot of uh, of um, of the Enterprise. He's It's right above Earth, shooting some lasers. Out of its torpedo tubes, but, you know. <laughs> maybe, actually, maybe it is launching torpedoes. Uh, yeah, actually, I guess it could be. It could be. It, it could, could be. be, but it, yeah, open to interpretation. Um, <laughs> but you know, also doesn't really reflect what happens in the comic. But or uh, yeah, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a thing. <laughs> so, so there. Um, evolutions is what it's called. Uh, so they're in V'ger now. They have uh, they're they're hanging out with uh, Ilya, the the zombie. There, Decker is that trying to zombie robot. Zombie robot. Sorry. And they're looking at uh, the old... This is also in the movie, the old uh, Enterprises, like Space Shuttle and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is also commented um, that this is where uh, Ilya sort of makes the comments about uh, how they're, the carbon-based life forms are an infestation and must be removed, which is the first indicator that um, that V'ger is, in fact, a, uh, a completely mechanical life form. Um, Spock makes his way out of the Enterprise to, uh, to see what's going on with V'ger. Now, this is a difference as well. This one is based off of an early version of the script for sure. Because okay. there's even, there's even photos, uh, production photos of this sort of thing happening. Hmm. Yeah. Well, but basically, um, in the movie, uh, as it is, uh, Kirk doesn't go out to get Spock. Uh, or, or he doesn't, not in the same way, what the, this crystal thing that's happening. 
Um, but he he doesn't. It's how did it happen in the movie? I mean, in the movie, movie, Spock leaves. Yeah, he manages to time it just right so he can go into Sphincter Two. Yeah, uh, and uh, he goes into Sphincter Two uh, and passes by uh, through all these holographic representations, all the things that Vidra has seen. Mm-hmm. Then he sees a holographic representation of Idlea with the sensor probe in the neck, and he decides to mind meld with it, which he does. And if you do a freeze frame thing, you can actually see spoilers because it shows a lot of old Earth stuff. You know, that would be on the Voyager probes. Ah. Uh, and then spits. Then Kirk decides to go out, but Vidra has been good enough to spit Spock out back out at the Enterprise, and then Kirk catches him. Yeah, and okay. And that's how it is in the movie. But this one, it seems like Kirk actually goes after him. Almost immediately. Yeah, yeah. And they have an adventure involving crystals that are kind of attacking them like white blood cells. Yeah, and that that's that doesn't happen in the film. Mm-mm. And, I mean, they kind of just shoot phasers at it and then it goes away so i guess i mean on all all honesty it was kind of a waste of time i guess the idea was to perhaps propel the idea of of the ship itself being a life form yeah uh and and having its its own sort of immune system to something like um kirk and spock being actually no the more i say it the more actually it does seem kind of like a good idea of kirk and spock being uh like viruses or just like um foreign objects in a body Mm -hmm. um but I don't know how the special effects of 1979 would have pulled it off and had it look any good. Yeah, truthfully, I don't know either. Um, so now I, I want your opinion. Now, basically, what was happening in the movie was Spock was giving exposition. He was recording it for a log, which, truthfully, that's what the captain's log and crew members' logs in all the Star Trek incarnation in, uh, have, have been good for. They've been good for exposition dumps. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what they're designed for. And Spock was basically giving an exposition dump uh, at this part of the movie but now instead of doing the exposition dump now we can have a dialogue with Kirk and they it serves basically this, the same function um, do you think one is better than the other? I guess they both work um, I, I kind of like the fact that it was Spock just going in on his own though hmm it was just sort of like this, this side quest that he had to do where he he just he went in kind of against or, well not even against orders but just uh, by his own volition without um, permission to do so and just went in and basically took in the information and observed it on his own and then made the mind meld. And I will say that I'm not... I'm actually less keen on the visuals in the comic than in the movie in this particular instance. Mm. This sort of grid-like thing, I just feel like it's very limited and doesn't represent... But, I mean, at the same time, like, what they did in the film, it looks terrific. Mm-hmm. And I would be... They'd be hard-pressed to pull off in comic form. So I, I kind of see why they had to make the concessions that they did. Um, it, it gets across what it needs to get across. Like, oh, there's the there's the Klingon ship, and there's the space station and all that, and there's Ilya. Um, but it just doesn't look as good. Mm. Yeah. Anyways, they re- return to the Enterprise, and Spock is like, blah, 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 pure logic, blah, blah, blah. And he's still seeking, his, seeking God and... Um, See, it's not. It wasn't pure logic he needed all along. He needed to integrate pure logic with his human emotional senses. He needed to integrate them, not mm-hmm. not not split them apart. Which I think this actually does a little better than the movie. Actually, the movie does does do it pretty well. Uh, where Spock explains, you know, even this this feeling of camaraderie is totally alien to Viger, and mm. yeah. So I, I think the movie does do it pretty well, but I. I feel like I feel like it's kind of easier to gloss over in the movie mm. than it is in the comic. In the in the comic, I, I feel like it's given a little more weight. Hmm. 
More touching base with Ilya. What is going on in here? Vedra's starting to launch its uh, things towards Earth. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. It's it's uh it's launching. It wants to purge humanity off of the planet because it's an infestation, and obviously humanity couldn't be the creator. Um. So then, uh, yeah, you know, this plays out pretty much the same as I think in the, um, in the film where Kirk has to basically bargain, uh, treat treat um Ilya like a child and bargain for Earth, saying like, you're not gonna get the information from me until you. Don't destroy the human race. <laughs> um, and then, um, yeah, Vijra has a bit of a tantrum. and uh, But eventually they figure out that uh, the only way to get, to save the day is to go on to, uh, to deliver the information to Vijra, the, the main computer brain, uh, personally. So Vijra's like, cool, let's do that. <laughs> um, and cool. uh, then they go and they make their way to meet the the brain of Viger, which is in fact uh, the Voyager Six space probe, um, which apparently is not a real thing. Yeah, uh, we, we said the only, only, only did done two Voyager one and two. Yeah, Voyager okay. one and so, two. I think it would have been kind of nice if maybe they just picked one and just like you know why not why not have it a real Voyager one. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah sure, yeah. Right? So, I get yeah or Voyager two, but. I guess they maybe they're expecting more voyages to go up there. All oh, right. Um and um basically yeah they're like uh, what is it um they try to deliver the message but they can't they have to they have to make contact physical contact with with Viger and Decker's like well this is what I want to do and then I'll say that this is a really nice splash on page twenty nine mm-hmm. of uh like very colorful purples and blues um of the of I guess Decker. And Ilya transcending to the next stage of evolution with uh, with Viger, and then uh, it's gone, and the Enterprise is like, cool. I guess uh, mission accomplished with three casualties. Yeah. Wait, but they're not dead; they're just missing. And that is that. And that's that. <laughs> yeah. This this um, you know, originally it just kind of bothered bothered me, but now really irritates me. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I think I, uh, I think the comic could have actually solved this. Decker's motivation for merging with V'ger is you want the Enterprise, I wanted this. You know, don't stop me, sort of thing. Uh, as if you know, one of his to do list items, you know, on the bucket list number eight, you know, merge with a giant machine mm-hmm. to ascend to the next level of human evolution. There's a super, super quick and easy way to turn this into something logical. And that fits with the theme of the story. Or, sorry, not even the story. Well, yes, in part the story and in part the character dynamic with Kirk. Um, Decker has shown he is more competent a commander than Kirk but has hesitated in showing that he can take the big risks needed for the chair. He he hasn't demonstrated that he can take the risks needed for the chair. He sees uh, whether uh, whether it's because he's executive officer or whether because he's hesitant, he is always questioning anytime Kirk wants to do something bold and decisive. This would have been a fantastic opportunity for Decker to say, I'm going to key in the sequence manually. Kirk and Spock being like, why? No, don't do it. And And Decker saying, one of us has got to do it to save Earth. And him finally stepping up, he's already got the competency, him proving now that he can also make the tough call and sacrifice himself. 
wouldn't have even required that much dialogue. It would have required maybe a bubble or two. Mm -hmm. We're not, I want this, but someone's got to do it to save Earth. And, oh man, that would have been powerful in that he doesn't doesn't want to, but someone's got to do it. Or even, um, there could even be implications that, well, the things I cared about the most, my command position, um, my my the 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 girl who the the one who got away mm. Ilya, the fact that they've now been taken from me um i am the man who should make this sacrifice because th- th- that will be my contribution that will, that will be kind of like what i have left and sort of like you know i don't know maybe, not that i'm like yeah guilt kirk like, <laughs> make him feel real guilty but like you know like, but again it just sort of it's it, it's makes sense with the character and like and what what he's had to lose to get to this point and then that would have harkened back to the Doomsday Machine because his dad, Commodore Matt Decker, did the exact same thing by piloting one of Enterprise's shuttles into the Doomsday Machine Planet Eater to set it for overload because he he tried he tried he failed but he tried to sacrifice himself to destroy the Doomsday Machine, and it would have it would have been a strange, horrible parallel, um, but a fantastically thematic one, hmm. yeah. Yeah. And one more quick aside. I love the O.J. Simpson uh, endorsement ads in this comic. <laughs> I mean, just with historical hindsight, it's hilarious. Oh, yeah, yeah. There were, yeah, the version we got, the digital version, <laughs> oh, it's so uncomfortable. The, um, the Dingo Kids meet O.J. Simpson. Yeah, loads of uh, loads of old ads, and some of them are, some. well, most of them have not aged well. So I always, <laughs> with, with ones like this one with the, uh, with the you know, Anything where where you have to like write in and to get like you know your your free this or or your your discount on new comics. Part of me is always like, well, what will happen if I write this in now? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I think is, is who I'm sending it to even there anymore. Right. Um, I will say I also really like the uh, AMT. That's who AMT. I was to oh yeah, yeah. Um, the... I like that that uh, that ads there because I mean actually AMT made a killing on the models on the Star Trek models. It made oh, a totally. killing. On them, and actually, I think they even supplied one of the models for, um, if I recall, uh, from the 25th anniversary special of Star Trek. Uh, they interviewed someone from MT, and they had supplied a model for some, for some official thing. I don't quite remember what. Um, it's it's been a while, but yeah, I mean, I th- I think that looks gorgeous, but uh, especially in stark contrast to the O.J. Simpson ad, it's paired off against. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good looking it's a good looking ad. I, I, I could see that one being in a. A modern day comic, sure. Yeah. What do you, What do you think overall of the uh, of the three comics, Doug? Well, you know, um, this is one of those cases where uh, I don't know if I'd say it's necessarily an a huge improvement, um, because there's still like some some story things where you're just like, ah, eh, you know, like not a lot's happening and it's kind of boring, you know. But uh, the the fact that you can kind of pick your pace going through it. It is quite beneficial because the main complaint about the movie is its glacial pace. Mm. Um, and the, yeah, and it's just like. You could watch Coral grow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it is nice that it's. Um, what, well, normally we read adaptations and they seem they seem so much more compact. You're like, oh, it's so rushed. But now because there is actually, you know, not that much story mm-hmm. or not that much plot to go through. It, it, the pacing is kind of nice, mm-hmm. and uh, I feel like it's it actually, yeah. I, I think that they chose all the right things to to keep and to cut, and um, there's nothing that seems like 
I mean, there were, yeah, there were a few differences, but nothing that was, like, a terrible, like, oh, I can't believe they changed that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all in all, I'd say, I'd say it's a very strong comic adaptation. I'd agree, actually. Um, I, I, I would not object to owning it. Um, if I had it, I, it would be kind of a cool thing to have in the collection, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's a little dated, but it looks great, first of all. Again, I, I mean, it just, the art is really, is genuinely really good. It, I it doesn't... I think I might own it. Really? Yeah, I, I have some mo- uh, Star Trek movie adaptations. I, I, I have to dig up my comic collection, but I, I might have this one. Hmm. I don't know. I, I think, I'm pretty sure I have the Wrath of Khan. Hmm. Uh, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and the pacing, I actually think, is really good. Like, honestly, honestly, really good. Um, I don't think the, the story suffers in, in any way. Um, they could have, honestly, they could have taken out dialogue and put in more splash shots of the, the ship and the, the wondrous voyage through V'ger and stuff like that, but they didn't. I think the way that, the, uh, that Wolfman structured the story was really, was really, really good. Um, I mean, he basically took what, what, was, what was given to him and really worked something... Um, I mean, I don't know what else. What else, honestly, you could ask for without taking drastic, drastic changes, and, and why? Really, people who are people who are going out and picking this up are either super curious about the movie, or are picking up every damn Marvel comic out there. Period, regardless of what this is, or people who love the movie. And I think it would satisfy all three. Truthfully. Or just Star Trek completionists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, th- I, I think it would satisfy all those audiences. Legitimately, I really, really do. Um, so yeah, I'll, I mean, I'd give it a, a stamp of recommendation. Uh, let's quickly go into... We have a little bit of feedback. I'll read the first one from Curtis. Curtis has said, I haven't watched the first Star Trek movie for many, many years, but I always remember it being really slow. Like 2001 Space Odyssey slow. Yep. Okay, maybe that is an exaggeration. Nope. Nah. No, it's not an exaggeration. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> but it has really long, drawn-out parts. Uh, so watching it again now was a treat, sort of. The plot is quite fantastic, but it could easily be the length of a regular episode rather than a full-length movie. Curtis says, aside, and he probably knows too, it pretty much was a full-length episode uh, called The Changeling. I haven't seen it yet, where there's a satellite on its way back, the Nomad. Hence, where Nomad has gone before, that was basically doing the same thing. Hmm. Uh, It was a bit of a retread. This is where the comic adaptation exceeds, Curtis continues. Unlike the film medium, which dictates the speed at which to process the information, the comic medium allows you to take it as fast or slow as you want. I think the adaptation is better than the movie for just this reason. The filler is removed so the story can shine. Yeah, and then he goes on to say, too bad you won't be able to talk about any more of the classic Trek films as the comic rights moved over to DC after this. And this isn't the epic DC podcast. Okay, so thank you for answering that question I uh, I had earlier, Curtis. Um, um, so yeah. I guess he's pretty much in agreement with, uh, with yeah, us. So, yeah, yeah, we had a lot of the same points. <clears throat> do you want to do the other comments? Oh, yeah. We've got a couple comments on the Facebook page. Yeah, um, not a lot. Just uh, uh, Alan says, uh, read it and enjoyed it very much. I have that special still as well. Uh, special still being, I guess, uh, what, this one? Or what, what is the... The Marvel Super Special Magazine, yeah. Okay, yeah. One. Yeah, it's that, that, it's, uh, that is a nice, nice, um, it's nice, a nice cover. Yeah. Um, and Ben says, are you guys going to do more epic movie podcasts? The hosts of that should probably know that the movie to comic adaptations similar to prose adaptations usually are made from an early version of the script. So that is why there can be significant differences, which I guess we already touched on. I, th- I think we, we have mentioned that yeah. a couple times, but well, we mentioned with the, the fact that the crystals came out and. And that was from, oh, yeah. from an early draft. Definitely. Than, I think we mentioned it in past episodes as well, but I, I mean, ab- absolutely. Um, 
I guess it it is really dependent on a lot of factors, but you're you're totally right, Ben. And also the hosts have names. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Waldorf, and I'm this Statler. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, I mean, you're 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 to- you are totally correct. Um, I also think, like, definitely in this case, I feel like Gene Roddenberry was overseeing all of this stuff. And who wouldn't want to after seeing the way George Lucas oversaw Star going back Star Wars, and he was he was in control. He was in control of it. Mm-hmm. It was his product. And I, I honestly, I really, really feel like this was the case with with the motion picture. Uh, well, no, it definitely was the case with the motion picture. Um, but uh, things did change with the next Star Trek movie when Harv Bennett uh, came in and he kind of took over production reign. And first off, one of the first things he says, you know, guys, let's call a spade a spade. This is the military. Give them uniforms. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're 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 basically the navy. They're mm-hmm. the navy in space. That they that's what the command structure is. It's, it's naval. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But thank you kindly to do feedback. I mean, if you please feel free to uh, to respond to the, to this next time. It's been a couple years, but not many years. For Christmas, I want to say, you gave me a a comic based on one of my favorite movies. Oh yeah. yeah. Um. We. So you want to talk about Blade Runner? I want to talk about Blade Runner. Okay. Yeah. And actually, to be honest, uh, I remember reading it and really digging it. So. I, it's currently on my wall, so we'll take it down and uh, pass it around. And 99 replicants on the wall. Uh, yeah. But anyways, guys, again, we look forward to your feedback. And I guess this is us uh, signing off. Again, I am Steve Ferguson. And I am Doug Ferguson. And um, what, what, what do we do to sign off? Do we... Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>